This is the Christian Life Center podcast. Here at CLC, we are messengers of hope, where we believe in taking God's message of hope everywhere we go to everyone we meet. From wherever you are, be encouraged by this week's message. Thank you so much. While you are uh, acknowledging me, would you just join me in acknowledging and thanking God for your senior leader, Pastor Tom Manning. Amen. I think you all can do better than that. I'm going to give you one more chance. Just honor the man of God today. That's much better. (laughs) Amen. Wow. It's always great to be at Christian Life Center. Uh, This is my third year being here to share on Father's Day. And um, I got a little secret to tell you all. The reason I love coming is because you give dads donuts on Father's Day. So uh, any other time you decide to do that, please invite me. And I might just stake around for another week or two and uh, take advantage of the, the barbecue ribs that you're going to have. Uh, I encourage all of the brothers and fathers to uh, let's band together. We need one another. And uh, I joined with Pastor Tom and also saying happy Father's Day to all of you dads. And uh, I myself am a father. I have a 36-year-old son. I know I don't look that old. Black don't crack. Amen. But I do have a 36-year-old son. Uh, I call him my rib tip. I got one rib tip. I got one rib, one wife, right? Adam had a wife. She came from his side. God took a rib and made a woman. So I got one rib, one rib tip, and uh, one granddaughter. I don't know what we'll call her yet. Maybe a slice of bacon, but uh, so glad to be with you all today. Um, I have a word from the Lord that I want to share with you, particularly to the fathers and to the men today. And uh, it's a word that really will call all of us to a greater transparency, humility, uh, and vibrancy in our walk with the Lord. If you have your Bibles, join me in the New Testament, first letter of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, I, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter makes no mistake that he's the author. There were times in Peter's life and ministry when he wanted his identity to be kept secret particularly when he was being challenged and identified as one of the disciples of Jesus. But right now, as Peter writes, he clearly and boldly declares, I, Peter, am writing to you. He's writing to people that he calls exiles. They were foreigners. In other words, they were Jewish Christians who had been scattered abroad as a result of suffering and persecution to various regions other than their homeland. They were throughout the regions of Asia Minor. These are believers that were part of the diaspora. The word diaspora means a dispersed group of people that are no longer living in their homeland, but now they have been forced to live abroad in some other place. My own parents uh, were part of that. My parents grew up in the South. My dad was born in Georgia. My mother was born in the state of Mississippi. And back in the 1930s up until 1970, there were six million African-American people that were a part of a diaspora, a part of a great migration. In other words, they left the South to flee 
the racism and the persecution that was uh, legal through the Jim Crow laws to go to the north and to the east and also to the Midwest. And some of them even went out to the West Coast, to California. But sadly, when they got to those places, they also found that Jim Crow was there too because racism has a way of just shifting itself. We deal with that still today, sadly. But my mom and dad, they met in 1950 in Chicago, Illinois, after migrating, being a part of this diaspora. And uh, I'm glad that they met because uh, not only do I have three older brothers who were born in Chicago, but I was born as well as my younger sister in the city of Milwaukee. There's a wonderful book for those of you that are readers, and I believe that leaders are readers. It's called The Warmth of Other Sons. It's a book that talks about that great migration of blacks from the South. But we're seeing that diaspora still happen in the world today, particularly in the country of the Ukraine, where several million Ukrainians have been scattered abroad, foreigners and exiles as a result of the war uh, by Russia in their own land. There were tough times back in Peter's day and still tough times today. But Peter was writing in the midst of these tough times to remind those believers that you are still God's elect that you have been chosen by God. You're exiled. You're, you're like Abraham, that God has called you to go from your homeland, to go from a place that's familiar to you and to wherever you go to know that you are blessed to be a blessing. It's important for us to remember in tough times that, that you may feel like you have been buried in an undesirable place. I don't want to challenge you to change your perspective and realize that God has not buried you there. He's planted you there. You are called. You are chosen. You have a divine purpose for your life and persecution doesn't cancel that. Peter writes in the second chapter of 1 Peter, again, reiterating our purpose, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. In other words, you belong to God. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, verse 11, as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. I think Peter is reminding these believers that as long as we live down here on the earth, that our soul is going to be at a war. Our body is going to, it's going to uh, uh, desire what it desires and you're never going to have that ultimate peace and you're never going to be satisfied fully by anything on the earth because you are made for heaven. There's going to be these wars within your soul, but he says, live such good lives in verse 12 among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And I join to Peter today as he writes and I speak to challenge and charge you to remember that you are called, you are chosen, you are royal, you are God's own people. Don't forget your purpose. And to the fathers and to the men today, especially those who are dealing with particular struggles. Maybe nobody knows what you're going through. To those who have fallen and maybe you feel like you can't get up, I'm here today to let you know you can get back up again. I say to every man, to every father, rise up. 
rise up as one. God is calling us all to come out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He's calling us to come out of sin and come out of shame. And especially to my brothers, to come out of isolation. We were made for community. We're not called to live in isolation. Any man who has gone through life all by himself without anybody to watch his blind spots, I serve you warning that the devil will roar like, uh, roam around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for you to be all by yourself. You know what I call a man who's all alone? Lamb chops. Because that's what the devil will make of you. He's waiting for you to be all alone. I call you out of your isolation. I call you into the community of brothers and to the fellowship of friends. We can rise up today. There's no better person to write this epistle than Simon Peter. Because if there's anybody that knows about disappointment and about failure and about failing and falling, it's Simon Peter. Peter, whom we're introduced to as Simon, first met Jesus through his brother Andrew. Both of them were fishermen. And there's a, there's a recording in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5 in which Jesus one day borrowed Peter's fishing boat. And he encouraged Peter after preaching to, to take his boat out and let the nets down for a catch of fish. And Peter, who was an expert fisherman, looked at Jesus and said, you don't know much about fishing, Jesus. I fished all night. We've toiled all night. The fish aren't biting. There is nothing going out, on out there. And Jesus said, well, just, just do it for me once. Peter said, nevertheless, at your word, we'll do it. We'll drop down the net. The Lord wanted him to drop down nets, plural. He dropped down the net. And when he dropped down his net, it was full of fish so much that he had to, he had to borrow somebody else's boat to pull all the fish in. And when he got all the fish in, he realized that he was not just dealing with an ordinary man in Jesus. He beat his chest and said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, don't fear, Peter. From now on, you're not just going to catch fish. You're going to catch men. I will make you a fisher of men. The Lord is encouraging us the same way that he encouraged this failing, finite Peter that you have a purpose to catch men. You have a purpose to, to live in the light of Jesus Christ. The name Simon means a small stone. His parents gave him that name. He's the son of Cephas. And, and I think Jesus saw something in Peter. In fact, I know he saw something in Peter that Peter didn't even see in himself. He was called a small stone, but, but one day he got a revelation of who Jesus was in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah, but he said, who do you say that I am? And this failing, finite Peter, who's always putting his foot in his mouth, he got it right this time. He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. But I call you Peter. In other words, I'm changing your name. I see something in you that you are a rock. You're not a small stone. You are a cliff. You're a ledge that's unmovable. And upon this rock, I'll build my church. Now, that's a good start for Peter, but it didn't, it didn't begin that way. This was the same Simon who, who, who pledged his undivided devotion, his, his unyielding loyalty to Jesus when Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified and when the Son of Man is arrested, every one of you is going to run and flee and act like you don't know me. 
Peter stood up and said, Lord, these 11 don't love you as much as I do. They may run and flee, but I'll never flee from you. Jesus reminded him, even though he had changed his name to Peter, he went back and called him Simon, Simon, Simon. Satan has already asked permission that he might sift you like wheat, but I have already prayed for you that after you fall, that you get back up and that you return to be an encouragement and strengthen your brothers. I think we all can relate to Simon. We've all messed up. Well, we, we, we've all had those Peter moments. But God is saying, in spite of your struggle, in spite of your failing, in spite of your falling, you can get back up and you can rise again. That reminds me of the song that was very popular several years ago that was sung by Donnie McClurkin. I love the song, We Fall Down. Anybody remember that song? I love the song, and I, I, for many years, I didn't understand why the Christian community rejected the song. And I think it's because the lyrics challenged many believers. He, he said in the song that a saint is just a sinner who fell down and got back up. And the Christian community struggled, particularly Christian radio stations. Many of them refused to play that song on the Christian radio. But the secular world, the secular radio stations, they ran and grasped that song and began playing. It was played on more secular stations than it was on Christian stations. And I think the reason is because we as Christians, we struggle with disappointment. We struggle to, to name and confess and identify our own human weakness and frailty. We're more comfortable and I think we love to be a happy, clappy people. We, we just love praising the Lord. You ask somebody how they're doing, and I'm blessed, blessed by the best, too blessed to be stressed. On my way to heaven, I don't want to be around people like that. I want to be around some real people. When I ask you how you're doing, you say, you know what? I'm this close to laying hands on this brother right here. And I'm not talking about holy hands. We're uncomfortable with failing. We're uncomfortable when other Christians fall and disappoint us. People that we put our faith in. Well, let me just stop you right there. Don't put your faith in man. Put your faith in God because we are all human beings who are frail and fickle. Yes, we're made in the image of God, but I'm not ashamed to say that I'm a saint, a sinner who fell down but got back up. I'm not ashamed to identify the fact that I've been saved by the grace of God. We're uncomfortable with, frail, with frailty and disappointment. But the reality is this, that whether you're a Christian or not, life is hard. Thank God that you've got Jesus on your side and in your heart as you're going through life because life doesn't discriminate. Come on, death comes to all of us. I don't care whether you are singing in the choir and paying your tithes or not. Relationships are a challenge. Being a Christian doesn't always make it easy. I know the Bible says live at peace as much as is possible within you with all men, but sometimes it's just not possible and I have to choose to love people from a distance, right? You know some people like that, they're just hard to love. Don't look at them right now, just keep looking at me. Some people are just hard to love. You just gotta, God bless you over there, baby. Bless you, bless you. Don't come over here, stay over there. I love you with the love of the Lord. 
The reality is that Christians get divorced too and still love Jesus. Christians disappoint and fail and fall and still love Jesus. David was an adulterer. I'm so glad that God didn't hide the fact of David's failing. Moses was a murderer. Noah got drunk. He planted his vineyard and he enjoyed it too. <laughs> Rahab was a harlot. Let me tell you what that means. She, she was a prostitute. Solomon was probably a sex addict. Come on, any man that got 700 wives and 300 concubines. <laughs> the truth is a saint is a sinner who fell down and got back up. We all fall down. We can get back up again. And Solomon, in even his failings, he wrote in Proverbs 24 and 6, for though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. But the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. Church, we have to embrace the fact that we are all saved by grace. Isn't that what Ephesians 2 and 8 tells us? It's not of works. It's not be based on what you did. It's not based on anything that you deserve. You don't earn it. You are a recipient of grace. We are saved by grace. We are kept by grace. And we have to live every day by the grace of God. Sometimes as believers, I think we, we reject grace and we often, we often want to be saved by grace, but we don't want to extend the same grace to our brothers and sisters who fall. They disappoint us and then we start treating them like a leper in the midst of a colony. Unclean, unclean. You stay over there. You disappointed me. But grace is not just for the sinner. Grace is for the saint also. I love what, what John wrote in 1 John 1 and 8 and, uh, through, through 10. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. We need his grace. His grace is not just for the bishop and for the pastor. It's for the prodigal. It's for the adulterer. It's for the addict. It's for the young. It's for the old. It's for the seeker. It's for the doubter. And it's for those who are doing okay. We need his grace. And grace has a name. His name is Jesus. And as pastor said, we need to run into the arms of grace. The father in, in the Luke chapter 15, in the parable, he ran towards his son. And his son was enveloped in the arms of grace. It's a picture of the father, God, to us. Grace will look for you. Grace will rescue you when he finds you. Whether he has to find you in a pig pen like the prodigal son or he has to find you in a prison cell or he has to find you on your deathbed in a hospital. Come on, some, some folks pray the loudest when they're in a hospital. <laughs> a 
Lord, if you just save me and heal me, I'll live for you. He can find you in a bowling alley. He can find you in a back alley. But when grace finds you, he will rescue you. I remember one of the brothers in my church, he just recently passed away earlier this year of COVID. But about 12 years ago, his wife called me on the phone and said, Michael has been gone for four days and I think I know where he is. Michael struggled in his Christian walk with crack, with cocaine. Said, I think I know where he is. He took his last check, he didn't come home, but I think you can find him over at such and such street. There's a house right on the corner next to the alley. I, I showed up at the door, not alone. I had three brothers with me. Come on now, somebody. Come on, even Daniel realized you need Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro with you if you're going to go into a fiery furnace, right? I had three brothers standing with me, and I knocked on the door of the crack house. And the drug dealer came out. He had his gun on his hip, and he looked at me, and he looked at the three brothers, and he might have saw some angels behind them. He said, wait a minute. I, I know who you want. Closed the door, and the next thing I know, Michael came coming out. Grace will find you even if you're in the crack house. Grace has a name and his name is Jesus. Grace is the opposite of religion. Grace begins with done. Jesus did it. It's done. You don't have to do anything. You're saved by grace through faith. All I have to do is demonstrate my faith. Confess my sins. That's grace. But religion begins with, no, you got to do something. You got to show me some signs that you're really saved. And then I'll accept you and then maybe God will accept you. Grace reveals and embraces humility and humanity. The Bible tells us that God gives his grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Grace embraces humility and humanity, but religion encourages hypocrisy and hiding. The tragedy that the church has be, is supposed to be a, a Holy Ghost hospital where you come in to meet the great physician, the healer, Jehovah Rapha, but you might come in on the maternity room, you might come in through emergency, you might come in through the psych ward or the aorta clinic. Or whatever the reason you come into the hospital, God's house is to be a Holy Ghost hospital that embraces all of us. Religion encourages hypocrisy, encourages you to hide your sins. People may not like me. They may not love me. They might not accept me if they know how I really am. And we end up living like hypocrites. And the word hypocrite really means a play actor. If Hollywood ever runs out of actors... All they got to do is come to Christian Life Center. They can find some hypocrites in here, Pastor Tom. I'm sure they'll find a few. God doesn't want you to act. He wants you to confess. Come clean with him. He knows that we're all finite and fickle. Religion offends and defends. But grace lovingly will offend your heart to reveal what's it. To offend your mind to reveal what's in your heart. What do I mean by religion offending? Well, see, religion builds fences. And then it creates offense. And then it defends our fences. 
The religious part is, that, is why we have so many denominations. We want to know which side are you on? What do you believe? Are you on that side of the fence or on this side of the fence? And then we get offended when people don't match up with our doctrine and with our traditions. And then we defend our traditions. And Jesus rebuked the disciples in Matthew chapter 8 because they made the traditions of men higher than the law of God. But grace will offend you lovingly. It will offend your mind. It will challenge your mind with the truth of the word of God to reveal what's in your heart. And every time God offends you, he's not condemning you. He's certainly not condoning your sin, but he's convicting you so that you can confess it and so he can cleanse it and so you can walk in fellowship and walk in the light, come out of darkness and live in this marvelous light because there's a purpose for your life. You have been called, you have been chosen, and you have been sent to be a blessing. The tragedy is that the world, the unchurched culture, rejects truth but misunderstands grace. The opposite side of that is that the church rejects grace and misunderstands truth. What do I mean by that? Where the world, the unchurched culture, rejects truth. In other words, in the words of Maverick City Music, I remember when wrong was wrong. <laughs> I remember when sin was sin, right? I remember when left was left and people had respect and mama said no. And then she followed and said, I meant exactly what I said because I told you so. But now we don't know what truth is anymore. We don't know right from wrong and, and, and the lines have become so blurred. The world rejects truth and misunderstands grace. And so when we offer the free gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ, the world is confused and misunderstands. Wait, there must be more that I have to do. And people often say, I'll come to the Lord after I do this and I get this out of my life. You're misunderstanding grace. Grace says, come to me just as you are. I won't leave you as you are, but you can come as you are. And the other side of that, the church rejects grace. And we misunderstand truth. What I mean by rejecting and misunderstanding, we have to understand that grace is not cheap. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace encourages your honesty. And I believe that people are attracted to grace. I think they're tired and they're hungry of religion, but they're thirsty for grace. They're looking for Jesus to show up in believers who will not, cut, who will not reject, who will not ostracize those who, who have fallen. Grace says you may have fallen, but you can get back up. As I prepare to close, I want to specifically speak and encourage fathers and men today. Satan is trying to kill us. You remember the birth story of Moses? That while he was a young child, Pharaoh was literally trying to kill all the baby boys. Even the birth story of Jesus, Herod was trying to kill Jesus. That is the spirit that's in the world today and forever Satan has longed to kill men. He's trying to kill you while you're still a kid before the king inside of you can emerge. There's a king on the inside of every kid. They say that men are really just boys, right? We just, we have different toys. The difference between men and boys is the price of their toys, but you're still a kid. Ladies, that's a little clue for you. Men like to play. I'm talking about good playing though. 
But the devil is trying to kill the king while you're still a kid. That's why men need kingmakers. We need women who are around us who will be wailing women, who will watch for our souls, who will anoint our heads while we're sleeping, who will call those things which be not as though they were women who will speak life into their men. That's what Proverbs 14 says. It says that a wise woman builds her house, but the foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. This is a woman who knows how to speak life into her man. This is a woman that when he, he gets a job and he brings his first check home and he, and he gives it to the wife and she looks at it and she wants to say, is that all? Instead, she says, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man I have. <laughs> this is the kind of woman that when he attempts to bless you and bring you breakfast in bed, that you push the eggshells to the side that's in the scrambled eggs and you eat them anyhow. You say, thank you, baby, this is the best breakfast I ever had. This is the kind of woman that when the husband tries to fix the leaky, leaky faucet and it gets worse, as you said, honey, I always wanted a spa in the house anyway. Now we got one, bless the Lord. And then without him knowing it, you hire a plumber while he's at that job. <laughs> Satan is trying to steal, kill, and destroy men. He's really not trying to kill women. He's trying to wound women. Because he knows that if he can wound a woman, she'll carry that wound through life. And it'll affect every relationship he have, she has with her children and with, with the man that God might send into her life. He's trying to distract children. And men, you have to know that God has created you with a purpose. And Satan is trying to destroy and distract you from your purpose. He's the master of temptation. That's why in, in 1 Peter 2 and 11, Peter reminds and he warns these exiles. He says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. As long as we are in this realm of the world, of the earth, we are supernatural creatures having a natural experience. Nothing in the natural will ultimately ever satisfy us. We were born for heaven. Now, there are things that you might get temporary pleasure. That's what I love about Hebrews 11. It says that Moses, although he, he, was, uh, he refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, but instead chose to rather, rather suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Anything down here might be pleasurable, but it's just for a season. It will never last forever. Peter is urging us to abstain from sinful desires. Satan is a master of temptation. He knows what you like. Can I just be honest with you all? I'm, I'm 62 years young. I've been married for 37 years, but I still notice beautiful women. And even when I walked into the sanctuary today, I said, yep, she's fine. Yep, she's fine. Yep, she's beautiful. You know who you are. He was talking about me. Somebody, he was talking about you. Probably was. <laughs> Can I just be real with you? I'm not blind and I'm not dead. That doesn't mean that I'm lusting after you. It just means that God gave me eyes to see. He made me a man and men are attracted by sight. 
Now what you do with your attraction, that's where temptation comes in. We never graduate from temptation. There's a story I love to tell of a young man who had given his life to the Lord and he was, he was probably part of the vibe ministry. He was one of them young adults. And, and, and you know, when you're in that age, your hormones are mourning all the time. And he came into the church and he said, I, I really want to live sanctified and for the Lord and I, I don't want to give in to lust. And so he looked for an older man that he could ask wisdom from. And he found an old deacon in the back of the church and he walked up to him and said, Deacon, I need your help. I need you to tell me, man, how old do you have to be before temptation isn't a problem? The old deacon said, son, you're going to have to ask somebody older than me. <laughs> and what he was telling the young man is you never graduate from temptation. But it's also true that you cannot stop the bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. Temptation may knock on your door, but you don't have to answer the door. And one of the things that helps gives us victory over temptation is knowing our identity in Jesus Christ, knowing who you are, knowing that you are called, knowing that you are chosen, knowing that you are a royal priesthood, knowing that you are God's own special people, and knowing that he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter urges us to abstain from sinful desires because they wage war against our souls. Temptation is common to all of us. But men, we deal with a different version of temptation than women. Men deal with three particular temptations. And women, you can relate to these, but not in the form of temptation because every three or four weeks, women, your body goes through a cycle. Your body experiences menstruation and, and, and it's, it's called PMS. That's a physical reality for women. But men deal with a spiritual reality that I call PMS. And our temptations come in the form of power, money, and sex. Power is something that God has naturally gifted us to, to walk in. He gave us a dominion mandate to, to rule the earth, to subdue it. And power is good, but when power is not submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ, then that power becomes painful to the women and the children in our lives. God gave you power, men, but you're supposed to use it to be the prophet and to be the priest and be the provider and be the protector of your family, not to be the abuser. A man who doesn't know his purpose is bound to abuse him. Power is good. Money is good. God gave us money. Hallelujah. How many of you are glad God gave us money? I can handle a little bit more, Lord. Just trust me. Amen. <laughs> I think I got a millionaire anointing on me. <laughs> Nothing wrong with money. But when you start loving money, now you've put money in a position that is only reserved for God. God-given desire. He gave us sex. And sex is a good thing. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, glory. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm going to be real with you this morning. God-given desires, God-given needs and urges, and sex is God-created. God made Adam and Eve, and the Bible says they were naked and not ashamed. And when Adam saw his wife, he said, my God, 
thou shalt be called womb man, a man with a womb, woman. Sex is good and sex is like the fire and marriage is the fireplace. One man, biological, one woman, biological, in one matrimony is the fireplace that you put sex in. If you take the fire out of the fireplace, you're going to burn the house down. You might even burn the whole village down, burn the whole church down. God gave us these, these desires. And what temptation comes along and says, will you satisfy these natural God-given needs and these God-given desires in an ungodly way? Will you do it out of the prescribed method of God, out of the, the bounds of scripture, out of morality, out of legality? That's what temptation says. Will you, will you feel, fulfill a God-given need in an ungodly way? That's why Jesus was tempted the way he was in Matthew chapter 4. After he was hungry, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. A God-given desire, hunger, food. But will you fulfill that desire outside of the Father's time? Instead of going through the cross, go ahead and exalt yourself and just become the Messiah right now. Jesus says, no, get behind me, Satan. It is written. I urge you as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. These are the words of Simon Peter, a man who fell and got back up. After denying Jesus three times, Jesus' grace found him on the beach. Said, Peter, go and get some of them fish that you miraculously caught. It wasn't Peter who caught the fish. It was Jesus. Says, have you caught any fish? No. Throw your nets on the other side. They caught the fish and John said, it's the Lord. Peter swam ashore and when he got to shore, grace had already prepared a meal of fish and bread for Peter. Didn't condemn him. Said, Peter, you're valuable to me. Go and get some of them fish that you just caught. No matter how far you've fallen, you are still valuable to God. And three times the Lord says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. You have been, remember I told you you were created to catch men, but you've gone back to fishing because you thought it was all over for you. This same Peter writes to us, I so wish that Samson, the strong man, had been around to read the words of Peter because Samson was created by a divine mandate from the Father. He was created to be a deliverer of the people of God. He was created with a vision and a purpose. He was chosen even before he was even born when his parents were parentless. The Lord himself came down and told Manoah and his wife, you're going to have a son and he's going to be a deliverer. He's going to be a judge, but he is also going to be a Nazarite, which means that he is going to be separated from his birth. His hair is to never be cut. He is never to touch a dead body. He can't even go to the funeral. He is never to drink any wine. In fact, don't even let him eat grapes or raisins because that's a compromise that might lead to the wine. And throughout his life, Samson, like Elijah and like John the Baptist, lived in this Nazarite state of consecration to the Lord. But the enemy wants to kill men. Because you know if he can kill the men, he can wound the women. And he can destroy the children. 
Dr. Mike Murdoch, the founder of the Wisdom Center, says that we must have a chosen focus. The number one reason that men fail is broken focus. Satan dreads and he fears a man who has his total concentration on Jesus. If every man would just be real, you know those moments when you decided, I'm going to live for the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And boom, what happens? Distraction. When the enemy wants to destroy you, he sends a person into your life <laughs> to distract you. I know I'm right. And the story of Samson's life is that the enemy broke his focus by sending Delilah into his life. And in Judges chapter 16 in verse 5, the Philistines came to Delilah and said, if you can find out the secret of his strength, each one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And so she began nagging Samson day after day. What's the source of your strength? And Samson began playing the X games, playing with his anointing. Says, my hair, if you weave it into, into seven locks, I'll lose my strength. He just get, got closer and closer to the source of his anointing, playing the X games, playing those dangerous games. And men, we cannot mistake the patience of God for the pleasure of the Lord. He is not winking at our sins and approving of them simply because he has not yet judged them. Three times Samson begins to play this game until finally he tells Delilah the source of his strength that his hair has never been cut. She tells the man, come back a third time. I know that he's finally given me the secret of his strength. And, and she, he, she woos Samson to sleep on her lap. And while he's sleeping on her lap, whoo, this is a revelation for somebody. somebody. Some man has his head in the wrong place. She calls for a young man and he cuts Samson's hair off. Samson rises up in defense when the Philistines come out, but he does not realize that the Lord has left him. You can read this in Judges 16. The Lord has left him. And they capture Samson and they do three things. They bind him, they blind him, and then he begins to grind in the prison. You were not created for any of those. You were not created for the shackles of sin. You were created for the freedom of Jesus Christ. You were not created for darkness of the prison. You were created to live in the light, the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. You were created to live with the vision, but they take Samson's vision away. But I love what verse 22 says. That while Samson was in the prison, his hair began to grow back. I believe that some men, that your hair is beginning to grow again today. Some fathers, your hair is beginning to grow. You might struggle with something, you might have fallen, but God says, like Donnie Milkirkin, you can get back up again. As Samson's hair begins to grow again, the Philistines, and this is just like the devil, because once he has you down, he wants to kick you. He wants you to stay down. Because the longer you stay down, the harder it is to get back up. The longer you stay down, your mentality begins to change. And you can begin to think that what you did is who you are. 
What you did is not who you are. Your identity is still in Christ. You are chosen. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's own peculiar person. Samson lost sight of that. And as they call for Samson to come out and entertain them in the theater, Samson said to the young boy, just let me lean against the pillars. He pushes his hands on the, pill- on the pillars and he says, Lord, just let me die with the Philistines. You don't have to die. You were created to live. You don't have to stay in that place of sin and generational curses and the habits that hold you. Samson pushes against the pillars and the walls come down. And that day, Samson kills more Philistines than he had killed in his entire 20 years as a judge in Israel. Can you imagine... The scripture tells us in in verse 31 that Samson judged the people for 20 years. What could he have done if he had judged for 40 years? What difference could he have made? Even more. But his life was cut short prematurely. There are so many of us as men that when we get to the end of our life, all the records and all the testimonies that you have, some of them will have an asterisk next to them which means it's another side to that story. Let's not be men that have an asterisk next to our name. You all know what I'm talking about. There are some sports records that have been, that have been recorded. Maybe it's because in the realm of track and field. Maybe it's in the realm of, of, of hitting home runs, but there's an asterisk next to that person's name. That means that, yeah, they might've hit this many home runs, but he was caught juicing, right? He, he was caught using steroids, There's an asterisk. Let's not be people, men who have an asterisk next to our name when we finish. Let's finish well. Let's run hard. Let's finish the race and finish strong. The last thing I want to share with you as I I close is found in the last verse of Judges 16. After Samson dies, there's this tragic verse that says, then his brothers and all his father's family came down and carried him back and buried him. This is the first time that we read about Samson having brothers. In those three chapters of Samson's birth and Samson's life, this is the only time that Samson's brothers are associated with him. And it's tragic because it says that Samson preferred the company of fools more than the fellowship of his brothers. These brothers were were robbed of the privilege of lifting Samson on their shoulders and giving him a victory parade through the streets while he was alive. Now they're called after his death and instead of a victory parade, there's a funeral procession. Men, don't wait until you're going down for your brothers to reach out. You were made for community. You were made to be with a band of brothers. And I believe that God is calling you today out of the darkness into his marvelous light. I want to ask every man, every father to stand today. I want to ask you to stand right now. And men, let's come out of darkness. 
Let's come out of shame. Let's come out of isolation. Let's come out of sin. And let's come around this altar right now. Let's take a bold step. No matter what you're struggling with, come on, just begin to come right now. No matter what you're struggling with, no matter what your past is, there's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no condemnation. Romans 6 tells us that grace is not a license to sin, but Romans 8 says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Come on, we need some kingmakers, women. Applaud these men. Shout glory for these men. Come on, let's encourage these men. Release a praise to the Lord for the men that are here. Some of you are seeing the men as small stones, but God is seeing them as Peters. He's seeing them as rocks. He's seeing them as cliffs. He's seeing greatness in you today, men. You might not even see it in yourself, but God sees it. God sees it. I want you to lift your hands right now. I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to ask Pastor Tom to come and give you further instructions and further prayer. Father, come on, lift your hands to the Lord. God, we come to you today as men. We take heed to the warnings of Peter and the warning to the life of Samson, God. That we know that there is a purpose and a call for our life, that we have been chosen. And Lord, we choose today to run into the arms of grace. We choose today to come out of darkness and to live in your marvelous light. We choose today to reject hypocrisy, to reject hiding, and to live in the light and the openness of your love and your grace. We choose today to lean upon the shoulders of our brothers. We reject the company of fools. And we thank you for the band of brothers that are at this altar today. We know that the altar is the place of being altered. Change us today, Lord. Change us as sons. Change us as brothers. Change us as fathers. Change us as husbands. Change us as boyfriends and as men. Change us today, Lord. And do it by your grace, Jesus. Do it by your grace. Thank you for grace that saves us. Thank you for grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. If you're, if you're not saved today, men, the Bible says it's by grace that we're saved. Just confess, I need your salvation today, Lord. Just confess, I'm a sinner, Lord. Just be honest with God, I'm a sinner and I ask you to save me by your grace and I'll live my life for you. Pastor Tom, would you come? Men, just continue to worship the Lord. If this ministry is making an impact in your life, why not help us make an impact on the lives of others by partnering with us today? You can give through our CLC app or at clcftl.org forward slash give. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe for more inspiring messages like this. Now go and be messengers of hope.